0: luminaries, talking to the brightest minds in tech.
1: We have always believed that if we built the right technology, we could amplify and enhance and enable human progress. And when I look at what lies ahead, I realize that we've really just
0: barely begun. Your hosts are Mark Schaefer and Douglas Carr. Welcome to another episode of Luminaries, where we get a chance to talk to the very brightest mind in technology and technology transformation. This is Mark Schaefer with my co-host, Doug Carr. How are you, Doug?
1: I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Mark?
0: I couldn't be better. And we are going to dispense with the customary podcast chit chat today because we truly have a rock star in our presence we are so honored to talk today to john rose john has a lot of different titles but he is the chief technology officer of dell emc john welcome to the show hey good to be here and john i understand actually you and i have something in common we both have seven patents
2: um. Actually, I have a lot more than seven. But, uh, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I, uh, well, know, I have at least seven.
0: <laughs> I was looking at your bio, and it said seven. See, now I'm brokenhearted because I will never interview someone again where I will be able to say that. I think.
2: <laughs> well, well, you know, you know, it's an interesting. Legacy. Um, when when LinkedIn, I've been a LinkedIn user for a very long time as a you know great social network for business. Um, when I decided to put my patents on there because I felt like it was kind of a useful thing to you know articulate, they they had no vehicle to do it, so I had mm-hmm. to use the, the 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 generalized notes field. And I actually kind of it was so irritating to go and grab the patent <laughs> numbers and copy and paste that I just kind of gave up. So someday I'll go back. I think they've added a better way to do it, but uh, but yeah, I think I um, just put in a sampling uh, That's a quite user, user experience.
0: Your technologies <laughs> are. Certainly helping mankind more than my technologies, which were, which were around holograms. <laughs> ah, okay. Oh, well, it's <laughs> funny there. Yeah. Let's get into it. And, and, and John, uh, gosh, we, we just have so much uh, we could talk to you about. But one of the things that I've been curious about is this is all about transformation and change. And one of the things that's been so fascinating is this idea of disruption, And there are so many models out there that try to assess potential for disruption or even predict areas, industries, services that might be ripe for disruption. Is something like disruption, is that something that can be predicted or is the very nature of disruption unpredictable? I think I
2: actually think disruption it, it can be both but I but I so here's here's the thing you have to look at the dependencies of what you're trying to do so for instance if you're in an industry you know being in the industry is the outcome you know it's not the thing that enabled you to do it the technology the market conditions the customer need all of those things are actually the underlying foundations of your ability to succeed or fail in an industry and it's when those change in some way in a meaningful way, that disruption is likely to happen at the business level. And so I actually think that, you know, people who purely look at, you know, a market, let's say, uh, you know, healthcare and say, oh, healthcare is going to be disrupted, but can't actually quantify what underneath it is changing. It could be a regulatory framework. We've seen that happen. But it also can be the advent of technology that has nothing specifically to do with healthcare, But potentially could change one of those foundational stacks that exist in the healthcare industry. And so, you know, a lot of the time, you know, we spend is trying to understand, you know, where these foundational changes are coming from. And if you start with that, then you can kind of work backwards towards where are the industries most most likely to be disrupted by that technology. So I think you can predict it, but only if you have a very good understanding of kind of the technical evolution going on in the industry, new technologies emerging. And you have to be very open-minded because if you only look for the technologies you're using in that industry, you're unlikely to see the adjacencies that occur mm. and the disruptions that are happening there
0: so interesting and and do you do you have a formal process for assessing that or where do you get those signals we
2: we do i mean uh, you know we, we we do a tremendous amount of work i mean there's a number of things that you know obviously it's pretty complex at our scale um data is your friend and so so when we look at innovation in general we the one thing we don't do is we don't do foundational research, you know, over like 10 year time horizons as a commercial company. Generally, that's best left to academia and research. What we do do is we fund that work. We have access to it. In fact, actually, next week or uh, actually what is it? Yeah, next week. I'll be over at MIT for their uh, member days because we've been a a big participant in MIT for a long time Mm -hmm. as one of the universities that we work deeply with. And once a year, they hold this big kind of, here's everything we're working on a couple of days. And, you know, obviously we spend time with them tactically, but we also want to have access to those ecosystems so we can see what potentially is coming at us. In fact, this is where we saw things like DNA synthesis uh, start to materialize, which, you know, you kind of go, what does that have to do with the IT infrastructure? But fast forward 10 years into the future, there is a reasonable hypothesis that said you may be able to store data in a DNA structure. You know, it's a, it is a data store, just have be the genetic imprint of a human being or a living organism. But the contingent to do that is not mm-hmm. that DNA exists, it's the ability to synthesize it. Now, I'm not predicting that we're going to have DNA storage tomorrow. But on the other <laughs> hand, having a relationship with things like universities like MIT and research institutions gives us early warning. Then we move in a little bit further and we start to look at the commercial ecosystem, you know, what's coming out of Intel, what's coming out of the semiconductor world, what new geometries around silicon development are materializing, what big inflections are happening in adjacencies. And, you know, we've seen some of those happen. For instance, this year and next year, we will see large-scale persistent memory materialize. 3D Crosspoint from Intel is an example of that, but there's many others that we've been tracking for probably five years. Those have profound impacts on how IT systems are going to be built. And they're going to be very horizontal across the entire industry. You know, and then you get in further and you start to look at your individual technology swim lanes and you start asking questions of, is there an adjacent architecture materializing? Do we, have we seen something happen in the consumer world that might get better over time and influence the enterprise world? A good example of that would be uh, solid-state disks. Uh, you know, early days of flash memory and solid-state disks – you, the enterprise use cases, because disks were very small and they had a lot of activity on them, required what was known as high endurance. So they could handle lots of writes per day. You know, That's how we measured the endurance of a drive, how many times a day you rewrite the entire drive, and eventually it wears out if you exceed that. But what was interesting is the consumer side compromised on that and drove costs down because you don't write that much to a consumer product. But there's a correlation that said when you actually start to build bigger drives – even if they have lower endurance because they're intrinsically bigger, the amount of data written to them actually requires fewer writes per day. And it was actually the adoption of both larger capacity drives and novel innovative technologies to drive costs down on endurance that came out of the consumer world, which actually is the baseline of enterprise products today. But three years ago, four years ago, nobody would have considered a consumer drive because they, they weren't big enough and they, weren't, they didn't have enough endurance. But over time, those two things worked at, against each other to create an ability to use lower cost, kind of consumerish technology in the enterprise. And that was actually incredibly important to moving to this kind of all flash era that we're in now. And so you wouldn't have seen that if you only looked at the enterprise swim lane, but you have to look outside of it in that substrate and then try to apply it. So, you know, any reputable technology company better be doing a lot of this over long term, medium term, and short term, and in adjacencies. For us, we tend to aggregate it, we analyze it, uh, we use a lot of tools to try to figure out what customers are talking about. In fact, we have a a vehicle where we use a data mining technology that in every EVC or customer briefing, we take notes. And then we basically take that information and we dump it into basically a big data engine, and we try to analyze, are there patterns materializing globally? are there more customers kind of bringing up a particular technology and sometimes that early warning can give us a hint about what we might be missing or where something might be materializing. Uh blockchain was a very good example of something that we you know we knew what it was we couldn't quite relate it it wasn't. It, it's kind of above the layers we play at, but the level of interest went up precipitously over the last couple of years, and we were able to see that by the kind of comments from customers, and that allowed us to kind of create things like blockchain as a service and Cloud Foundry and to look at how we optimize our infrastructure. So to, there is no one answer other than keep your eyes open and cast a very wide net and try to understand that unexpected things happen to your industry from places that you didn't expect them to come from.
1: Wow I was reading obviously doing some prep for the the podcast and there was a couple of things that stood out to me um, in the reading and that was one is um, in the IDC IT organization imperatives report one of the key behaviors that they talked about was being future focused and it sounds to me like obviously Dell has to be way out in the forefront of, of being future focused future aware, future focused and then and then actually creating for that future. But what was surprising was that one in three IT organizations are only current focused. So can you talk a little bit about, okay, how does Adele who's taking and looking at these things, you know, way in the future and then, and then obviously working with academia to go even further, how are you bringing these ideas to industries that they're just not there? They're just not even looking um, where they need to be.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, you know, first of all, we have a kind of core responsibility to be, <laughs> extremely broad and extremely long-term and extremely tactical at the same time because we're the biggest player in the industry. And so we have customers that range the continuum. We have ecosystems that are in different stages of their journeys. And so their expectation is that, you know, we're, we're going to catch it before they do. We're going to understand what's happening. So part of our responsibility comes to scale. If you're a small startup and, you know, you're in a niche, by all means, you should know that niche, but nobody expects you to know the, broad, the breadth of IT. Well, we're not a niche. We're, we're kind of the entire Infrastructure business of the world in one place. Um, so, so, so we definitely have to be future-focused. But to your point, you know, your customers range from the bleeding edge, actively being disrupted or doing the disrupting. Uh, you know, and we're definitely seeing that in places like industrial and, to some extent, healthcare. But definitely, the banking sector is going through a transformation. And you know, and, and even within those sectors, there's people at the forefront and there's people that are kind of waiting to see. So if we acknowledge that there's that spectrum of the most bleeding-edge customers that want to disrupt their industry or an active disruption from someone who may be a cloud-scale provider, and then at the other end of the spectrum, you have people that are basically happy to just keep the lights on, what's important is that these innovations that are materializing, these disruptions that are coming at you, end up benefiting all of those customers. So in the case of the early adopters, a lot of the time it's very explicit interaction. For instance, I have a team that works for me called our Open Innovation Lab, which you know works with the kind of bleeding edge, large scale customers that have an unsolvable problem. And if we find one of those, if nobody has a good answer, we'll actually engage with them and technically try to solve the problem together. You know, it's based on principles of open innovation. that a guy named Hedrick Chesborough a professor at Berkeley, kind of coined about 15 years ago. You know, deeply collaborate with your customers to solve a problem together. Now, that wouldn't make a lot of sense for people on the rest of the spectrum. On the other hand, the people who are actually just consuming product, they actually have an expectation that even if you don't know why or how, that the price points come down, the performance goes up, they're intrinsically stable. And so a lot of the innovation that occurs within our company and our ecosystem makes its way very quickly into the componentry and the architectures of mainstream products that most people don't even know that that technology is in there. You know, again, not to dwell on uh, solid state memory, but yeah, you know, solid state memory or flash technology still is early. I mean, we're, you know, it's kind of become the dominant media type for persisting data. But the reality of it is, is, you know, that that's only in the last several years. There are customers that haven't really adjusted their IT architecture in, in for a decade. And they're not going to because they're in a very stable industry and maybe there isn't a disruption. The fact that those customers, when they buy a storage system, for instance, that is just going to serve their legacy applications that might have been written 15 years ago, to take a product that is using the most state-of-the-art media in the world, state-of-the-art compute in the world, plug it in, and it speaks the old languages. It speaks to that system that's been around for a decade. And the only thing that happened is the prices came down and the performance went up. That's a way for them to consume innovation and be, quote-unquote, future-focused without knowing you are. And that, that's because our responsibility is to not just innovate for the bleeding edge and innovate for the first movers. We have to innovate for the whole industry. And as that innovation is going to be consumed, what you have to recognize is a lot of the customers that need to consume it do not want to understand it. It's not in their interest, nor do they have the capability or the desire to understand it, but they should absolutely benefit from it. So you know, and we we find this too often with companies that say, "I have this great innovation. In order for you to use it, you must change." Now, change is hard, and it takes time for a lot of people. The better answer is, "I have this great innovation that makes what you're doing today better if you're mainstream or even a legacy environment, but it also potentially could be exploited in novel ways for a bleeding you know a bleeding edge early adopter, but." Candidly, you ought to be able to pick how you absorb that innovation, and it really has to be the spectrum from explicit uh, dynamism where you're changing your architecture and adapting your business all the way to you don't know you're using it, but you get the benefits of it. And that's kind of the holistic approach of how you deal with that. And I I don't think that statistic you described is wrong at all. I think probably a third of the customers in the world honestly don't have a lot of time to think about the future and think about what's coming next. They're kind of trying to keep the lights on and run their businesses, and IT is very secondary to them. There's no reason on earth why they should not benefit from the innovations that are coming at them. But the best way to do that is to hide that innovation and make it manifest by just simply improving their existing operating model.
0: John, I wanted to to build on that. And certainly there is this continuum of businesses that are disrupting or being disrupted or some that may be in a certain steady state. So how do you be intellectually honest about your business? How do you know if it's okay to bolt on or say, hey, we really need to transform. What are the signals that a company would look for to know to say, hey, we've really got to go through a transformation here or, you know, are they just kidding themselves by thinking things are stable?
2: Well, well, the first thing is that everything, you know, laws of entropy tell you that everything is constantly in motion and changing. It's just the speed in which it changes varies. But, but the, the bottom line is the biggest signal you can have that you better get on, on the bandwagon and transform yourself is when a digital disruptor shows up. You know, and we like to talk about the, you know, the Amazons and the, the Ubers and the Teslas of the world. Those are very good examples of technology companies that use technology to disrupt industries. They're very visible. They're very obvious. So, you know, candidly, if you're an automobile manufacturer, you just have to look at Tesla and say, okay, oh, hey, I'm being disrupted. I better move. Mm-hmm. And the good news is they all have, they, they and we're working with most of them because they realize that it's, it's a digital game. It's not a mechanical game necessarily to win in the automobile and transportation industry. Um, you know, the, that's, that's almost too simple. You know, sit back and wait for the Uber of your industry to show up and then it's time to go. Uh, the good news, by the way, is is you may actually use that as your strategy if you're in a, a relatively staid kind of classic industry. Because interestingly enough, if you look at the timeline, as long as you knew that Uber existed, if you were completely blind to them even emerging at all, um, you might have been too late. But But from the time that they were founded to the time they really started to force change in the industry, it was measured in years. There's plenty of time for you to then begin your transformation as long as you don't just stand there and deny their existence. I guarantee you the difference between a successful and an unsuccessful automobile or transportation company right now uh, is the ones that, are, or that, when they saw this materialize, began to move are likely to have a chance of success. Anyone that is in denial about a very obvious digital disruptor is very likely to fail they're too late now because the disruption's already underway, the lead horse is out of the gate, and, you know, this is not going to slow down. Now, that one's one's completely obvious. The other, um, you know, way to kind of understand when you should move is looking at your customer's uh, experience. You know, far too often we accept – Uh, mediocrity, we we accept bureaucracy, we expect uh, that, you know, it's okay to have a bad user experience. And what you'll see with every digital disruption that's occurred is it wasn't really about the technology. It was technology that enabled a more natural, seamless experience to the service that was being provided by that industry. You know, an intelligent car that can be updated over the air is about a user experience, not necessarily about the underlying technology. And so if you're in an industry where your employee satisfaction and your customer satisfaction are just intrinsically bad then it is very likely that there will be a disruptor coming and it's very likely you could be that disruptor if you chose to improve the user experience i think the airline industry specifically airports went through that exercise if anybody remembers i travel a lot but go back 10 15 years ago and you know when your flight got canceled uh, or was delayed, you had no idea until some voice in the sky <laughs> came on the PA and told you, hey, uh, the pilots aren't here, or the plane's broken. Um, a few airlines figured out, you know, hey, wait a minute, we ought to invent in this space. Actually, Continental was a good example of this, uh, where they started putting monitors up and they started to basically share information. They invested very heavily on, on digital to create a better user experience, apps that could tell you what the wait list is and who's on the upgrade list and what's the status of the plane. Today, we take that for granted. The user experience changed, but you'll notice something about the airline industry. There's a lot less airlines. And if you look, generally one of the characteristics of the ones that kind of prevailed or the architectures was they probably had a better digital strategy. They used it primarily to create a better user experience. Now I'm not claiming that airlines are perfect yet, but we saw that pattern where there, there wasn't a new airline a la a, a Tesla that materialized to catalyze this. There was a unsolved user experience problem that was so obvious to every consumer of that product that as soon as one of the incumbents started to invest more heavily and try to look and take it seriously, they got an unfair advantage and it began an industry transformation. And again, the underlying technology is what enabled it to happen, but the problem wasn't the technology. The problem was people didn't like the product because there was something wrong with the experience. I think healthcare is ripe for this. We're seeing some improvements, but they are very early. And, you know, uh, clearly, you know, the banking sector in emerging markets has moved to that model with mobile banking, and that's creating a huge amount of disruption. But it's, it's very much likely to be either there's a digital disruptor already present, or if you're intellectually honest and you look at the scores of your customer satisfaction, and user experience, there's just something intrinsically wrong with the friction and the experience and the, the outcome of how people consume your product. If either of those conditions are true, you are probably, if not certainly, going to be disrupted by either somebody from the outside that's obvious or somebody from the inside that takes advantage of technology.
1: One of the things that you touched on, John, that I think is an intriguing one is regulation, like with healthcare. From a regulatory standpoint and from a privacy standpoint, security standpoint, I'm interested in your perspective on when we're moving at the speed of light, how do we get regulatory, um, you know, engines up to speed as well?
2: Yeah, uh, obviously the, you know, a regulated industry intrinsically has a a drag chute deployed. (laughs) It it is very difficult to move fast if you have an archaic regulatory framework. Let Let me give you a funny story. In a previous life, I used to be the chief technology officer of a company called Nortel. I ran worldwide R&D there and one of the things that we were doing in the in the mid 2000s is we were creating a technology that ultimately would be known as LTE or long-term evolution or 4G. And I remember, I, you know, we had a very good relationship with the various FCC commissioners. And one day I invited a couple of them up to Ottawa, Canada to just, you know, we do this periodically just to educate them. You know, we weren't selling, we weren't the end user, we weren't really regulated, our customers were, but we felt it was incumbent on us to help the regulator understand what's going on. And I remember bringing one of these commissioners up and we had a, um, this is, boy, 2007 we had a uh, you know a lot of early work around broadband over the air you know this idea of cellular broadband not not voice over the air but real broadband which you know eventually became LTE and what was interesting behind it is we you know I remember showing them this test bed and it was you know big circuit boards and it didn't look like a cell phone but we showed them the bandwidth and I remember showing this commissioner that there was you know, over the air, streaming in at like 30 milliseconds latency, which is just like broadband in your house, you know, 45 megabits per second of bandwidth. And at the time with 3G, you might get a megabit if you're lucky. And he's looking at it, he's trying to process this. And, I, and I, I said, you know, understand what you're looking at. You're looking at the future of your industry that you have to regulate. And the industry that you're in thinks of cell phones as a thing to make a phone call that might do some data. And what I'm showing you is something that doesn't do phone calls in the traditional sense, but looks like the broadband industry that you're regulating on the wireline side. And you can see his kind of brain click in and he said, well, you know, oh, this is bad. This means my, my entire regulatory framework has to change. Now, in order to work through the regulator, the first thing that we have to do is recognize the regulators are mostly lawyers and, and governmental agencies. They're not the technology industry. So we have a responsibility to educate them, to keep them informed about what's coming next. The last thing you want to do is invent a great new technology that's going to go into a regulated market that you didn't have the courtesy to try to educate the regulator about what the changes were going to be. That doesn't guarantee success, but I guarantee it will guarantee failure. A wonderful innovation that the regulator has no idea is coming and takes five years to adapt to. So, so first principle is big technology companies have to recognize that part of their delivery of technology in regulated industries is that they have to actually work with the regulator early and they have to try to educate them about significant changes so that we can adapt the regulation because that moves very slowly. That, you know, is not done well today. Uh, We need a much better framework for that, and companies need to take it much more seriously. And to be perfectly honest, if you're a startup and you come up with a great idea, it's going to be applied into a regulated industry, and you're not capable of changing the regulations, you're likely to fail. Um, So that's number one. Number two is... You know, remember, not all problems have to be solved within the regulated framework. A good example will be in the healthcare industry. Um, It takes time to get, you know, uh, FDA-approved medical devices, even if they're digital. You know, it takes, remember, you know, Withings just released a a uh, uh, FDA-approved Wi-Fi-connected thermometer. It's really cool, actually. It does uh, remote sensing. It kind of logs everything to an app. took them a long time to build it because of the regulations, but they eventually delivered it, it met the compliance, and it's quite, a, quite an impressive piece of technology. Um, but the, the, the bottom line, though, is if you're going to try to apply new technology in a regulated industry, you might have options. For instance, a lot of the healthcare innovators actually innovated in wellness before they innovated in healthcare. They said, maybe it will take time to put this into core regulated functions like medical procedures and medical instruments. So maybe I'll invent the new technology initially in basically just care and feeding of people outside of the regulated side. You know, companies like Humana did a lot of great work with the early Apple Watch you know, an app called Q, which was one of the first, you know, nagware uh, functions. It kind of looked at what you were doing and would tell you to stand up or breathe more. And it was totally targeted at wellness, but what it allowed them to do is become relevant in the digital transformation of the overall healthcare market without necessarily having to deliver a medical instrument. And so regulation is not your friend if you're trying to move fast for innovation. So either you have to move the regulation as significantly as you invent the technology, Or if you're doing invention, you may actually find there's an adjacency that allows you to provide almost the same amount of value to the end customer without necessarily having to get directly into the regulated environment. And by the time you work that out, maybe the regulation will start to catch up because they now have something to look at. But the bottom line is there is no magic bullet. There is no way to snap your fingers and change regulation quickly. It's there. You have to acknowledge it and it has to be part of your overall innovation framework. It doesn't mean it is an impediment for you innovating. There are ways to get around it. There are ways to innovate behind it, above it, beside it. Um, But ignoring it is usually a recipe for disaster.
1: Sure.
0: Well, John, um, I'm looking through my questions here, and we've got through about one third of them (laughs) and i just feel like we could go on oh my you've just got my head spinning here and uh maybe we could uh convince you to come back on the show another time because Um, there's just so much oh my gosh i've just got so much here and so really uh thank you so much for sharing your vision your wisdom and your insight today and uh unfortunately we'll have to draw this to a close And we hope you've enjoyed this episode of Luminaries. We hope that you'll think about uh, subscribing to the show on iTunes or another social media channel. We hope to hear from you, leave a a comment, leave a review on uh, iTunes, and uh, we'll see you next time. This is Mark Schaefer and Doug Carr signing off for Luminaries. Luminaries, talking to the brightest minds in tech a podcast series from Dell Technologies.